Hello, and welcome back to Off the Deaton Path. I'm Stan Deaton with the Georgia Historical Society, and we welcome you to this podcast for December 14th, 2023. We are broadcasting this week from the Literary Division at the Georgia Historical Society on the 15th floor of the Jepson House overlooking beautiful Forsyth Park in downtown Savannah. My guest this week is author Jaron Elise Turner. Jaron is a writer and Amazon best-selling author of four books, most recently, What Do You See?, a children's book about diversity, inclusion, and black history, published in 2023, and What Do You See?, a companion journal, a creative coloring book about black history first, diversity, and inclusion, also published in 2023. She is also the author of The Biggest Star, published in 2022, a children's book about grief and separation, and A Dream Come True, a coming-of-age self-discovery book published in 2017. Jaron graduated with honors from Spelman College with a BA in economics and graduated at the top of her MBA class from Clark Atlanta University with a concentration in marketing. In addition to being a writer, Jaron is a senior vice president for a global financial institution, a certified yoga instructor, a mindfulness advocate, and a mentor to a host of young people. Jaron lives by the basics, as she says, balance, beliefs, and deep breathing. Jaron joined me on the podcast to talk about her writing life, her upbringing, her books, and the inspiration behind her fulfilling life. To connect with Jaron, you can find her on Instagram at Spellman Gemini. That's S-P-E-L-M-A-N-G-E-M-I-N-I. And on Twitter slash X at Jaron Turner, J-E-R-Y-N-T-U-R-N-E-R. My conversation with Jaron Turner begins now. Jaron Turner, welcome to our podcast. Hi, how are you doing? I'm so happy to be here, Stan. Thank you for joining us. You wear many hats, as our listeners have heard in your introduction. But the thing I want to talk to you about is um, your writing. You and, you and I met at the Chautauqua Institution in New York. Um, I was there to speak, and um, I was talking about a topic that had to do with race relations in American history. And you informed me that you have written, you are a writer of books, and that your last book was a book that you wrote for children, and it particularly had to do with race. The title of that book is What Do You See? A Children's Book About Diversity, Inclusion, and Black History. Tell us about that book, if you will. Yes, it would be my pleasure. So What Do You See? is a book that I wrote. My niece inspired the topic as well as the story. She is an aspiring ballerina living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And so based on her experience, I've seen and heard a lot about inclusion, the lack of diversity from her eyes. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is a great little town, but it's not always done well with race relations. She does go to a performing arts school and her face, her experience is different than others that she sees. And the reason why this aspiring ballerina book is so pivotal and such a good topic to talk about race, there are things that just happen within the ballet experience that at one point, the majority of ballerinas um, were not brown skin. And so some of the things that they just tend to do, such as flesh tone stockings and point shoes that tend to be of a pinker color. 
all of those things as an African-American who's trying to see herself and find her voice and go to middle school has allowed her to look at things in a different way. And for her, although she doesn't talk about race all the time, race is the subcontext for a lot of the discussions that we have when she's like, but this is not my flesh. You know, can I change the point shoe colors? Something as small as hairstyle. So Stan, she visits me in Atlanta all the time. I'm the fun auntie that likes to do just different things. And one of my really good friends owns Princess Pizzazz Hair Salon, um, a salon that targets young girls and really helps to foster confidence for them in terms of giving a place for their hair to get done. So for several years, my niece would come down, get her hair corn rolled. And this last visit, visit, she paused and said, oh my goodness, I can't get my hair done like that. Another rule as a ballerina is that my hair has to be in a bun. Mm. And corn rolls, traditional African-American style, but now we live in the United States where so many things are merging and style is style. And in my eyes, corn rolls could still be done in a bun style, but she was afraid that that was going to be not accepted. And so some of those things are the reason why I was very passionate about writing this book. I don't expect her to be a freedom fighter. She's 13. She is just developing as a young girl. So as her aunt and her mom and dad and her grandparents support and love on her, I believe that what do you see has provided her an avenue to talk about some of these things, but in a very soft way. And so that is where the diversity and inclusion is touched upon. The Black history is really knowing that in this post-pandemic world we live in, where there's social demonstrations, there is an image in the book where you see a demonstration um, that is talking about justice, and you really cannot tell if it's within her lifetime or back in the 60s. And so the whole premise behind what do you see and the reason why I brought in Black history is if we do not educate and talk about some of these things, history will repeat itself. If young kids are not aware of the history of the United States and Black history is American history, they may fall into similar traps that we've seen in the past. So I did the What Do You See standalone book about her experience, as well as the What Do You See self-esteem journal, so that she's aware of other trailblazers. Everyone thinks about Misty Copeland, but there are so many other African-American trailblazers in that ballet space that now that she knows about them and understands their story, she has the confidence to be one of the first in her school, but also to continue on a legacy of excellence. Where did you get that title? What does that mean? So the title, and if and you know, for listeners, if you go to Amazon and you see the image, that's what I love about children's books. Yes, you have the words, but you have all these beautiful images. There is a black uh, ballerina on the cover. Her hair is corn rolled. That was so important for me to portray the fact that you can still convey that bun with a corn roll style. And the spotlight is on her and she's on the stage and the audience is representing the United States and the diversity that we see. So there's black people, white people, Indians, just different cultures. So I got the title because often as an African-American growing up in Rochester, New York, I felt like the spotlight was always on me. 
And I even ask myself, and as an, uh, as an adult, what do others see when I go into corporate America? What do others see when I am speaking about books? And so I think, although it's a children's book, the idea and the title really does pose a very dynamic question for all of us. And you mentioned corporate America. <clears throat> so yeah. you work you work in corporate America and, and that that's your day job. This is your um, I don't know if you call it a passion, but writing books is something you do outside of your other job. Um, what's different about writing a children's book? You're the author of four books. Yes. Um, what, what's different? What, what do you have to do as a writer differently when you write a book that's aimed toward children and not just black children, but just children? Exactly. And I'm glad you said that because the what do you see book is a universal message for all children. Mm -hmm. I really have to get in touch with my inner child. I have to remove things that I know as an adult to kind of assume the voice of that child. Um, I have the luxury of having two nephews and a niece. And I think playing with them and seeing life through their eyes keeps me at a very childlike perspective that allows me to have their voice. But I think the biggest challenge is I have concepts that pop into my mind. And normally for a children's book, I have to get through four or five drafts to kind of make sure that I hone in and ensure that I am speaking from a child's point of view. As I mentioned, this book um, is about a middle school experience. So I had to peel back you know, who I am as a college graduate, as a corporate executive, to really get down to the nitty gritty of how would a middle schooler describe their experience. So that's the most challenging thing is to ensure that my voice is my own in terms of the creativity, but that the message and the delivery is authentic as someone who is in that character. Mm -hmm. um, how did the events of 2020 in this country. You mentioned the pandemic, of course, but George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, how did those events influence? And I presume that you started working on this book after those events or maybe during them in 2020. I don't know how long it took you to write this book, but how did those events influence what you put down on the page? Or maybe you envisioned this book one way and then these things happen and we're all living through this pandemic. And so then you're trying to write a children's book. How do those events influence what you put down? How do you wrote this book or conceived of it or produced it? Those events shaped the message. So I didn't mention the inspiration for the first book, but it is a mother daughter relationship book. Mm -hmm. And my niece love her honesty, but she said, if Gigi, and that's what she calls her grandmother, got a book, where's my book? <laughs> but to answer your question, I started this book in 2019. Mm. And I held on to it because the timing just did not feel right as an author and other authors that are listening. It's almost like having a child. You have to make sure that it's ready to be delivered. You've thought through it. And for whatever reason, even though I felt like the content was good, I felt like there was an aspect of the message that was still missing. Then you have everything that happens in 2020. And so then you realize that this is an opportunity not to just talk about an aspiring ballerina, but when you have race relations, how do these things impact children and all children? I think one thing that we mentioned when we met was twofold. You don't want 
children to hear and listen his, to history and assume that they're to blame for everything. And then you also don't want the other population to feel like they're victims. So you have to very delicately think through how do you convey a message and how do you convey it in a very delicate way. So the murder of George Floyd was a pivotal thing that shook us all up. And I thought it was an opportunity to mention diversity and inclusion, but also include what was happening in the history of our country. So this book is about an aspiring ballerina, but it's also about returning to school post pandemic and in light of those events. And so not to give away the message, but there is a scene in the book where the principal is in the auditorium and the kids are like, how are we doing school on the first day? And she wants to state the elephant that's in the room. Some kids are wearing masks, some kids are not wearing masks. But to have it take place in that snapshot of time allowed us, allowed me as the author to really dive into what has happened over the time period that kids were sent home. And that was a big aspect. It was the pandemic, but it was just as equally as important to talk about what had happened in the country as it relates to race relations. Now, you wrote this book and, and it's it's came out. <clears throat> at a time in our country when, as you know, there's been a huge pushback from certain elements and certain groups uh, in our country against the teaching of American history, um, and let's just be honest, in black history, and, and how that's taught, the words that we use to describe it, the words, I mean, that you've got diversity and inclusion right there in your title. Um Obviously, those are conscious choices that you chose to put those in there. But how has the ongoing cultural war in this country over history and over black history, how has that informed your thinking and your writing, particularly writing for children? It has made me know that going back to my niece, going back to her friends, that they're living in this culture. We cannot erase race. We cannot ignore it. So how it shaped it is that. I will continue to have the passion to continue to talk about these topics. And, you know, when you mentioned that last question, I'm thinking your listeners are probably thinking about Florida, where we're banning books to talk about Black history. This book is my way of addressing a bigger topic to plant the seed. Now, is all Black history in this book? No, but it's enough for kids, guardians, parents to open up the lines of communication as an author, I write books who that portray and address a void that are within other books. And I haven't seen a book like mine out there. This is the ability for children and parents to have topics that are not the easiest to have and is a way to kind of begin the conversation. So there is a scene where my niece comes in, her mother's crying, the TV quickly turns off. Her and I know why that has happened, and this is a scene that happened. Now it's an opportunity for the characters in the book to talk about what just happened, and that is how she talked about George Floyd, how people that look like her family are being murdered, and how there's all these injustices. Enough for a middle schooler not to be overwhelmed, but enough for a parent to then educate and have a way to talk about these things. I think the biggest thing in my mind is parents don't know how to have difficult conversations. 
So my book and others that are out there are meant to foster those discussions. How's the book been received? And then, and, and among across race in, in, in parents, children, what, what have you heard as a writer? What feedback have you gotten? I've gotten amazing feedback. This book has been discussed in other corporations. So that was the surprise where affinity groups pulled me in to say, Hey, we want to talk about diversity and inclusion. You may not think that this is a specific synergy, but we think it's a synergy. Our employees have children. And it was so awesome, Stan. I, I joined this Zoom call. It was a company out of Chicago. And on this uh, meeting, they had the ability to bring their children in. And so it has gotten such good feedback in the sense that we're not playing the blame game, but we are presenting facts. And if we stay in that space and continue to talk about those things, it can lead to other discussions. I've also read this book in schools, which allows kids to be able to talk about things that maybe they've shied away from. And I'm a realist. I'm a huge optimist, but I'm a realist. And sadly, since the murders that you've talked about, there's been other racially motivated activities and actions and murders and homicides that have happened in this country. So that is validation that I have to continue to get the message out. But the response has been very good. And one of the things that I was so focused on was to make sure there was uh, equal representation. So you have races in here, you have religions, you have different groups of people that sometimes in our culture, we always bring it to black and white, no Asians, Muslims, just different people across the world because it is a global issue that we're all going to have to work together to be able to find a resolution but in most things, communication is key. I didn't mention that as my day job. I'm a communication executive, but I go back to communication. And to answer your question, we have to begin and continue these conversations and allow what has happened in our world to be not overlooked. When we go into corporate America, when we go into school, it's it's like we've gotten to a place where we don't talk about religion. We don't talk about politics. Are we now going to ignore race when you cannot join a call with me and I'm on screen and see that I'm an African-American woman? You can't ignore that. So are we going to sugarcoat it to the point where we're trying to do that? Because if we do, I truly do believe history will repeat itself. Do you Have you sensed whatsoever <clears throat> um, the power of you walking into a classroom and people realize she's the author of this book and, and maybe young girls go, wow, I can write a book. She looks like me. Um, have you sensed that? Have you felt that? Have any kids said to you, you know, if you can do this, can I do this too? It's, it's, it seems like it would be a really amazing thing, right? All because so much of the Western canon, right. Are white males that, that so much of what I think is still on the curriculum and people like you walk into a classroom. It's a powerful thing. I would imagine. Yes, on multiple levels. Um, I have natural hair. So I walk in unapologetically me. And I walk in as an advocate for self, as an advocate for women, as an advocate for goodness. And so I feel it in multiple ways. The example that I mentioned in terms of going into the school, I do a lot of mentoring. And I had a program this past summer where I was mentoring with the Girl Scouts. So many young girls came up to me and said, oh my God, how hard was it for you to write this book? I have a book inside of me 
but I assumed I had to wait 10, 15 years. And I'm like, no, with how the publishing um, industry has changed, you can self-publish, you can do a lot of different things to get the message out. But to answer your question 100%, when I walk into the room and people have access to the author, I think it gives them a sense of pride and a level of confidence where they know that this is something that is attainable for themselves. Have you had this self-confidence and this assuredness that you have that exudes from you? Have you had that all of your life? Was that learned? Was it taught? Did you see it in somebody else? How did Jaron Turner become Jaron Turner? So no, I had to grow into my voice. I've always had something to say. And I think as a writer, um, part of that process was me journaling. And that was my way of getting my thoughts on paper. It was something that I saw my mother do. And I did learn that piece. Confidence wise, my grandmother had so much confidence. So by watching her, I knew what I wanted to attain, but I didn't know how to get there. And it seemed like there were so many things I had to work on. My mom and my sister are amazing public speakers. I've learned to kind of now become a public speaker, but at some point, I had to kind of grow into that. But in college, I was very, very shy. And people don't believe that because they're like, well, you're very talkative now. I will say two things that changed that and, and increased the trajectory of my life was going to Spelman College, a historically Black college, all women institution, and then getting my MBA from Clark Atlanta. Those two places educated me, but empowered me. And I think that's the, the role that HBCUs play where they see your potential, but I could no longer just fade to black. They were like, you have something to say and you're very intelligent. And they kept having me work on it. And they like, they, they said, you know, you're not going to fail if you try, but know that we always have your back. Those two institutions specifically graduating with my MBA made me feel like I did have something to say, allowed me see, to see the resources and allowed me to grow into the person that you see today. What what are the great challenges for our listeners out there? The, the, the challenge that you've had to overcome uh, that you you would identify, self-identify as perhaps you're, you work in corporate America. You talk about how people turn on the screen and they see you who may have only heard you on the telephone or whatnot. How What's the great challenge that you, I mean, from my perspective, I might go, well, you're a black woman, but you might give me a different answer. What great challenge would you identify in your life, in your career, in your writing, in the hurdles you've talked about just then that you had to get over to become the person that you are? You may be surprised by my answer, but I think the biggest challenge is how I work. So we didn't touch on this. I also teach yoga. So my view of the world and how I challenge problems is never to hit it head on. I do a lot of analysis. I process a lot of things. My approach working in corporate America, in my opinion, what I've heard from mentors is so not corporate because I have a softer approach to everything. Sometimes corporate has this mindset that you just get in there, you clear a path and you almost don't have that collaborative approach to work. I think we're now doing a better job, but earlier on in my career, those that got promoted were those that had that stronger approach where mine was softer. 
But I will say that that softer approach, once people saw my results, was something that they respected because I can literally work with everyone. I'm a big observer on human nature, how to interact with people. And I think that's been my greatest asset. But I think when we talk about corporate America, my biggest challenge is as a yogi being in corporate America, I feel like I'm different. Now, granted, African-American women working in corporate America, that is the obvious. But I think the biggest thing that I've seen is the way I've approached life and allowing others and gaining others respect for how I manage things that may be different than how they're used to. Well, how would you define in your in your everyday life, in the, in the life you're describing, uh, what, what to you is good leadership? That's good. a little bit different than what we've been talking about, but I suspect yeah. that you, you bring a different perspective to that too, but you're yes. a leader where you are. How do you lead? Yes. I mean, you've talked about it a little bit, but so what do you look at? What do you look for in a good leader? Yes. Love the question. And I'm also someone who has a word of a day and I break down acronyms all the time. So when you say leader, I really think the L in leader stands for listening. Leaders have to have the ability to make decisions with limited information and they have to come in confident. But I think the biggest aspect and what makes a good leader is to listen. And I'll be transparent. I changed roles in the pandemic and came to an organization that had a lot of tenured employees. I know how to do communication strategy. I did not know how to do communication strategy at that company. So going back to your question, I had to listen to understand what would be appropriate and relevant and what would achieve results. And when you're a newer person coming in as an executive, you don't have the year to make the impact. It's the 30, the 60, the 90 day goals. And so me listening and tapping into identify the big wins and me listening to individuals that may have felt overlooked, I work for a global team. So globally, how we interact and how others um, look at work and culturally, we don't always have that very assertiveness. And that was the biggest thing to identify individuals that sat in India and other places who weren't as comfortable speaking up all the time. But as a good listener, me tapping in. So really being respectful of cultural differences, not making assumptions. I always say you cannot ask a question in a group setting and expect everyone to speak up. There's introverts, there's extroverts. Sometimes the listening has to be in how you approach the conversation. Let's go back to your niece for just a minute. Yes. I, I was curious. I'd be curious to know what you would say. How is her growing up as an African-American in this country what, what she's experiencing day-to-day -day in life, whether it's at school, in her neighborhood, in her community, among her peers, among people who are not her friends. How is it different from what you experienced growing up? What has changed or what hasn't changed? Is yeah. it worse? Is it better? How is it different? I think grow her growing up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and her school has diversity, but not a lot of diversity. There's some synergies between her experience in Pittsburgh, my experience in Rochester, New York. So some things just in the sheer demographics and the numbers, you could say, oh, very similar. I think the benefit for her 
is that we have had an African-American president. So there was a period in her life where that's all she knew. So that's a plus in terms of the figures that she's seen of power. It's debatable. And, you know, I don't want to make this super controversial, but sometimes people think presidents are more um, around optics and being and having the title. But as everyone knows, the way our government works, Barack had a lot of challenges with getting things passed. So there's a lot that she has seen. But I think in some respects, she may not have fully been aware of the race relations that had taken place. Now, similar to her, our family has very detailed conversations. Her grandmother, who was over the African-American Heritage House and how we met, has always been someone who continues to talk about history, her role, and the things that she needs to know as a young girl. But I think the progress that has been made with figureheads and a lot of accessibilities and a lot of other things that we've seen grow in terms of progress, even in terms of celebrities and things of that nature. I think those are the things that she's like, oh, things have gotten better. But I think the area that we still have a lot of work to do on is how people view just common Black people and common white people. And just at that level of the interaction, I think that's where we still have work to do. So if I think back to my grandparents and my mom and my parents and things of that nature, they still remember times of segregation. We still are teaching that and she's aware of that. But I think in, in her eyes, she's like, well, our neighbors are different colors and things must have gotten better. But that's why I'm glad that you brought up what has happened in 2020 um, with George Floyd, because I think that was a reality check for everyone. And that forced her to have a perspective of why that happened and how that would impact her. So there are some similarities between her upbringing and mine, but I think the main difference for her and I is the level of time that has passed since segregation, the level of time that has passed since the March on Washington. She's aware of those things, but I think over time, people can almost have the luxury of having it being a distant past. But I'm telling you, life will always pop up and remind you of what work still needs to be done. And I think that is what the pivotal aspect of what happened in 2020 did for her as well as her peers. Mm -hmm. Was there a book like yours that you could turn to when you were growing up? Were there any books like that out there? Did you did you find books? I mean, obviously, probably not with titles including diversity or inclusion, right? But I mean, do, were, was there anything like this for for young people when you were coming along? I am thinking very hard about that question. There were a lot of books, and my mom's an educator, so I've had to read since I could learn how to read, and I probably started reading earlier than everyone else because education was so important. I cannot think of another book from my childhood or even as an adult that has touched on diversity and inclusion in Black history in this way. I think there's been books on Black history. I think we've talked about and I've seen and my mom had me read different things about March on Washington, Ruby Bridges, um, busing and things of that nature. 
Um, but I really cannot recall of a book like What Do You See? When I was growing up, there were things about race and Black history and the struggles that Black Americans have had in this country. My mom was very pivotal about educating me about um, African history. So Shaka Zulu and a lot of other things so that she knew I knew history for me did not start from slavery, mm -hmm. but that there was a rich history going back to Africa so that I had that perspective to balance out images that a lot of black kids have and see when we're only talking about slavery and they're like, oh, is that all I am? Getting from that perspective, my mom wanted me to have a very well-rounded perspective and my parents as well. So they had me read things about African history. They had me read things about Asian history. Like they wanted me to be educated because of the global aspect of what we do and where we live. And knowing that was very, very important. And so as I think about your question, I've thought through like, what were the books that I was reading? And I've touched on a lot of them, but I do not recall a diversity and inclusion book such as What Do You See that I read at that time. And most writers that I've talked to are, were, were good readers when they were when they were growing up. And you just confirmed that you were. Was there anything in particular that you read growing up that it just inspired you to become a writer? You said you journaled for most of your life, but was there a book? any book, at any stage of your development. Yes. I love my Angelou. I, I channel my Angelou in terms of, you know, if she was still here, what would she speak about all the stuff that's going on? I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings is a book that my mom and I read in a humanities class. And my teacher was so ahead of her time. She had a class called Humanities and we would jointly read books with our parents. And then they would bring the parents in and we would have a discussion. And at the time I thought, oh, this is just a fun thing to do with my mom. But now that I'm looking back at it and you're kind of touching on it, as generations go on, how do you bridge those generational gaps? And I think my humanities teacher um, had a solution in terms of us reading the same book to have a conversation about that. Um, Maya Angelou, and I've read so many of her other books, but to answer your specific question, that book inspired me. Even at the time, I didn't think I was going to be a writer in high school. I just knew I was someone who loved to journal. But even thinking back to how I write, my tone, um, how I look at describing characters and things of that nature, I know have been influenced by her as well as that book. You have mentioned your mother several times now. I had the pleasure of meeting your mother at Chautauqua. Um, talk just a little bit about her. I mean, clearly she had a tremendous influence on your life, the way that you um, created your own vision of the world. Um, talk a little bit about her influence, who who she was and is as a person and, and her impact on you. Yes. Beyond Dr. what you've already said. Yeah. Dr. Cecilia Griffin-Golden the fact that she has the doctorate was huge. She has been in our family an advocate of education. And because of her, my cousin has gone on and gotten her doctorate. So she represents an amazing role in my life as my mother, but also in that family, um, giving my family goals to attain and things that they want to pursue. I have two cousins who have their doctorates. And I think because of her, they thought it was possible. Her undergrad was in Spanish. So she has this global 
thought process because she was a bilingual educator for many, many years. Then she was over the reading curriculum, superintendent. So she's worn various hats. And the reason why she tends to come up a lot is because through her, I see the ability to adapt, the ability to reinvent yourself. And even how we met was because I was visiting her at Chautauqua. Um, she's represented evolution and a level of confidence that I think has influenced both myself as well as her other children. I'll talk a little bit about, if you will, and you've touched on this throughout this conversation, your own background, your, your, your education, your youth, clearly your home, um, but also your, your education, your gender, your race. How have these things come together and continue to come together to inform your thinking and your writing, particularly as you, and I don't know if your next book is going to be a book for children or, or what your next project is going to be, but how does all of this kind of inform the way you think about the things you want to write about? Yes. I think everyone's point of view is through their lenses, so you can't turn off your background when you write. As an African-American woman that grew up in Rochester, New York, and being in the minority, I got to see and interact with a lot of people who did not look like me, but I had an amazing childhood. I excelled in academics. I was very active. I was a cheerleader. So oftentimes when people ask me, well, how did Jaren become Jaren? I would be remiss to not bring up my experience in my time in Rochester. But I think that experience also motivated me to want to connect with the rich Black history. So that was the reason why I did go to two HBCUs. I bring that up because we've been talking a lot about race. And there's been several aha moments in my life, but I think the biggest one, and also bringing in my role as a yoga teacher, is knowing that they're good and bad in all people. That if you start judging people based on how they look, you will overlook a lot of different opportunities. And I say that because having the luxury of being in the minority and having some great experience there and then going to HBCUs, I've started to identify that people are people. And so the main thing in getting to answer your question is really around how has those things shaped how I write? I want there to be more experiences and for other people to relate to my experiences so they keep an open mind about race. So they keep an open mind about genders. Some of my best advocates have not looked like me. White men who saw the potential, who saw my openness and eagerness to learn, who have invested a lot in me. And I'm purposely saying that because I think oftentimes someone can have a sob story about, well, this is what's happened to me. I do have those experiences, but I choose to focus on the good. And I have had a lot of amazing experiences with people who have not looked like me, a lot of amazing experiences with people who do look like me. And I feel like as an African-American woman, I have to do my part to pay it forward. So that it means I'm mentoring and giving back to Girl Scouts and giving back to Spelman College and Clark Atlanta University because I know that I've lived a very privileged life and privileged in, in the access to resources that have allowed me to grow and evolve to help others. So I think you can't talk about writing without talking about yourself and how these things have shaped 
my outlook on people, my outlook on the topics that I write about, and my outlook on the investment and the time that we have to invest in people to address the things that we want to change. I'm not a complainer. There's things that I vent about, but with every criticism, I'm going to also constructively give myself and others some solutions to make things better. So having grown up in Rochester and you went to college, as you just yes. mentioned, the two schools, two outstanding colleges in Atlanta, and you live and work in Atlanta now. Yes. So how, what is different about Atlanta in terms of the, the experience? Um, you know, Atlanta prides itself on its racial history, right? Going back to the civil rights movement. Um, do you find, and you've been here a while um, mm-hmm. and, and, and went to school here when you first came here to the, to the South, to the deep South from Rochester, was there a culture shock? Were you still around a lot of people who sort of had the same experience you did growing up? But once you left the confines of the university and you got out into the quote, I'm putting air quotes around this the real world, <laughs> was there sort of like, oh, my God, I, I am in the South, whatever Atlanta is. If you understand what I'm asking, I'm sort of like, what is, yeah, what, what has that been like for you? Yes. How did you find Atlanta? So coming to Spelman, the good news is I was raised in a lot of my influences. And as you know, in the black culture, it's intergenerational. My grandparents are both from Augusta, Georgia. Mm. So my perspective in terms of being raised in Rochester, I still was saying, sir and ma'am, I had a Southern influence that almost was the core of my experience. When I came to Spelman, it wasn't a culture shock in terms of that, but I also was in a gated community and a lot of Atlanta, or I should say Georgia, was restricted. So I had four years where I was able to thrive. The one thing, cause you had asked about Atlanta and why I've chosen to stay, represent, representation matters. So being around other like-minded individuals being able to see a black mayor, being able to see other people succeeding in this city has made it possible for me to succeed. And I think that's been very helpful and has been one of the reasons why I've stayed in Atlanta. I have moved to New York City. New York City is also quite progressive, a lot of global representation, but Atlanta itself really, really embodies representation matters in regards to being able to identify role models and other individuals that are doing what you want to do. So it's a little easier for them. But like I said earlier, optimist, but I'm also a realist. Georgia is an eyeball. So you have a black center, which is Atlanta, and then you have the neighboring communities. I also influence, going back to my grandparents, by what they experience in Augusta, Georgia, specifically Hepzibah, Georgia. So I am not going to drive late at night. I'm not going to be in an area of driving in the backwoods where I don't have cell co- coverage. I'm going to be very cautious because I also re- recognize that Georgia is Georgia and that Black people have not always been accepted outside of Atlanta. I think if you get an hour outside of Atlanta, you will see signs change and things of that change. And so I am conscious enough to be not naive when I do travel in other areas and try to get to places before nightfall. And I love your question because it's like Atlanta is great and it is great, but let's not forget Atlanta is in Georgia and there's a lot of work that we still need to do within the state of Georgia. I think mm. about Stacey Abrams and everything that she's faced. I think about politics 
Atlanta has saved a lot of the recent elections, but Georgia still represents this tug of war of this old mindsets. But at the same time, Atlanta has also been a breeding ground for education. So you have people who have an influx into the city and they're working and they're doing some things, but we still are having to balance that out with a lot of older mindsets that that um, operate and exist outside of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I hope that answered your question. It, it does. And thank you for your <laughs> frankness. It absolutely does. Yes. Um, and it's 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 refreshing to hear. Um, I want to go back to your writing just for a minute. I assume you have other books in you. You're going to write more books. Yes. You're going to continue to write. Talk about a little about the writing process. What time of day do you like to write? What do you write on? Do you, are you an early morning or a late night, somewhere in between? Do you use the old scratch pad or do you work at a computer? Tell us about how, how you work. My greatest inspiration is first thing in the morning. I recommend this to everybody. Readers can take this or leave this, but give to yourself before you give to anyone else. So first thing in the morning is when I work out, where I, when I walk, and when I write. And oftentimes I'm not writing these long passages. Sometimes it's the word of the day. Sometimes it is what is on my mind. I observe life to seek understanding. So when I go through different heartbreaking experiences, when I've dealt with disappointment, I felt that emotion, but I also stepped back to understand the why. So that's what I tend to write every morning. It's usually a reflection of, summarizing the day before so I can literally cleanse myself of that and be ready for the day at hand. But writing first thing in the morning has really been helpful. I used to be big on um, paper and a pen, but because the iPhone is always with me, I use notes a lot. And what I love about that is I don't know where I put half my journals around the house, but I have one phone And having the notes section allows me to keep accountable and it allows me to see if there's common themes that are coming up. So that's really the genesis for a lot of my books. If I see some common themes coming up, I'm like, oh, there may be something here. But I still do have the journal time when I go on vacation. I take a lot of self-care trips. And during those times, I do force myself to do pen and paper. It stimulates a different part of the brain. Uh, My first book, I worked with someone named Tom Bird, and he forced me to kind of think about writing in a different way. He said, if you type it, you're giving your mind too much time to take over because typing is something you've learned to do. But writing things out, even if you don't know what you're going to say, there's a stream of consciousness that comes through. And that is a little bit more authentic than oftentimes the typing But definitely I write first thing in the morning. I take writing trips to kind of sit down with pen and paper to get those things out. And how the writing process for me works is once I feel like there's a book there, I step away, look at what I've talked about in that subject, pull that together and start structuring it to see how can I make sense of these words. Children's books and why I love children's books is they're shorter. So I can knock out a children's book in a weekend, but going back to some of the earlier conversations that we were talking about with what do you see, that did take years because there's the illustrations, but there's also um, redefining the message to make sure that it is relevant 
and appropriate for the audience that would be reading it. So hopefully that helps other people who have books within them. Don't ever get frustrated. I think some people are like, oh, did you just wake up and write the book? I guess for some people that may be their case. But for me, it is a longer process because of how my mind works. I'm a big processor. So I will, people may think, oh, is she really doing anything? I'm always listening. I'm always thinking and I'm always processing. So that's probably why it does take me a little bit longer to achieve some of the books. I heard a writer once say that anybody who tells you that writing is just inspiration and it just comes out is, is just full of it. That writing is really hard work. You agree with that? I do. I yeah. do. Yeah, I do. Is it harder? And it seems to me that one of the hardest things in the world to do is what you've done, write a children's book, because there has to be the temptation to change the way you write because you're writing for children. How do you do that? You don't want to use the phrase. I know that's, you know, you don't want to dumb it down or you don't want to send it and put it at such a level that's almost insulting. How do you find the right voice as a writer that you know you're going to connect with children? Or is there a difference? Is there a change? How do you do it? Because I'm surrounded by kids, I am a godmother to many, an aunt to, to my niece and my nephews, but I also wear that title around other people um, in Atlanta and other places that I have these close relationships with them. I've always been childlike, and I think there's a level of innocence that I've always held on to, which gives me that humility and ability to tap into that that uh, children-like voice. And so I think for me, it can be a challenge, but then you have to step back and not using your term of dumbing it down, but I always say simplify. Children are very concise. What do you want? Pizza. They're not going to say, I want pizza from this one place. They're going to give you a one word answer. We almost want them to justify their answers, but kids are straight into the point. My five-year-old nephew, Lucas, he's very honest. And I truly do believe people, especially children, come here to give us messages. His message for the family is to be honest and be unapologetically you and be authentic. So to answer your question, I surround myself with kids. I listen. I trust that what they're saying is correct. And I schedule time in my day, every day to play. By doing that, I peel back the layers of what people see when they see me. I'm not, a, after I turn off my mind from work, I'm not around here like, okay, corporate executive. Even with the books, I love that people want to talk to me and say, okay, four-time Amazon best-selling author. How cool is that? That's just what I've accomplished. But who I am at my core is a lover of life a playful child who through the blessings of God have has accomplished a lot, but I strip back the layers. And that's truly how I write the children's book, stripping back the layers and getting attuned with that inner child and remembering to play so that I say things in a very simple way and just, you know, get to the point. <laughs> that's a terrific answer. Thank you. <laughs> So I, 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 I suspect I know how you answer this, but I want to hear how you answer this. So given all we've talked about, all that's happened in our country um, and is going on in our country, we, we are entering a very pivotal a year, a year that many of us are sort of almost dreading to cross over the threshold into. 2024 is going to be a very important year for our country. We're holding an election 
2026 is the 250th anniversary of the United States. How we look back at where we have come from um, is going to probably be controversial. I talked about the, just the title of your book, right? We can't even agree on these words. <clears throat> are you – sum it all up with this question. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of this country and the people in it and the children who are growing up? Are you optimistic – because so much of that, you know, we hear, God, that generation is just nothing but TikTok and, you know, five-second attention spans. They don't do X, Y, Z that you and I did growing up. So you looking there across the – over the horizon, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? A hundred percent optimistic. I think anyone who spends time with kids and not just – family kids. I think oftentimes we, we have biased views like, oh, my kid is so brilliant. Really? They probably need to work on some of these things. But and I'm not saying, you know, be be less optimistic with your family. But what I'm saying is take the time to talk to kids that don't look like you. Take the time to mentor and invest in others. I am so optimistic because with the work that I do outside of corporate, my love and passion is mentoring. And every child that I've talked to, every young person that I've talked to, every college age person that I've talked to knows what is important in life. I think oftentimes what we've told everyone in terms of these expectations, go to college, do this, work hard. I say work smarter. I don't say work harder. I think there's this level of you have to earn a lot of these things that we have in this country. And I think you do have to earn some things, but no one should ever have to earn respect. No one should ever have to earn um, being treated in a fair way. No one ever should have to earn equity and equality. And I say that because in some respects, you have black kids that are working really, really hard to prove themselves. We have to unmask those confidence issues to get to the core part of who they are so they can just be them. And so we can start unmasking a lot of the mental health issue, especially with black men in terms of their longevity in this country. So I'm taking this answer in a different way only because I understand the crux of the question of, are you optimistic? I am optimistic because I've spent time with kids and know that everyone wants to live in a fair society. Everyone wants to have access to an amazing life and opportunities and be able to live their dreams. And so that is the optimism that I know will fuel the change in this country. I also believe that the TikTok generation and Instagram, as much as we look at them and say, oh my goodness, they're always on their phone. There is some amazing content on social media. I've also been pushing my content more on there. So there's a balance to what they do what they're exposed to and what they do see. So for every piece that someone's like, oh, it's too much of this, then put something else out there that is more food for thought that resonates with what you would want to invest in our youth. Be the change. Instead of just saying, oh my goodness, I can't believe all these things are happening. Look for solutions. And I think the biggest solution is the integration. I think the biggest uh, solution is inclusiveness. And for us, to not look out and try to identify what's wrong, but to get in the trenches, to talk to different people, to do work. Boys and Girls Club, there's so many mentoring programs out there. 
I think that in itself is one way that can change things and writing books. As, as the more and more I write, I know that there are people who are reading this book that is changing their point of view. The more and more I walk in as an African-American woman who has what I believe is a beautiful demeanor, I know that they're having another experience with someone who may be different than what they had thought. Going back to Rochester, that experience in itself has shaped my other classmates and their parents. Oh my goodness, we love Jaren. We love Jaren then saying, oh yeah, I guess she is African-American. Like that's the piece where I say integration is so important because with every experience that I've had, it's always ended well. So there's no reason why I'm not going to be optimistic for the future because I'm doing my part and I'm voicing my opinion and I am connected with other like-minded people who want change to happen and who are conveying goodness. That was one of the biggest reasons why I got into yoga. Another area where people walk into my class and are not expecting African-American women to be teaching restorative yoga. But once again, I'm sharing goodness. I'm, I'm portraying what the change that I want to see in the world. And for that alone, that is why I can sleep well at night and know that the United States of America that my niece and my nephews and my God kids are growing up in will be better. That is an inspiring answer, Jaren. Thank you. I want you to tell our audience uh, where they can find your books. Of course, Amazon, but also um, your website, if you want to call that out. Um, should people just go to Amazon? You tell us. Where, where can they find more about you? Yes. And as you mentioned, Stan, there's four published books, A Dream Come True, The Biggest Star, which we didn't talk about, but that also came from a heartfelt experience. It's a children's grief book. And then the standalone, what do you see about the aspiring African-American ballerina dealing with diversity and inclusion in Black history? And then the what do you see self-esteem journal. All four can be found on Amazon. My website is Jaren, J-E-R-Y-N, Turner, T-U-R-N-E-R dot com. I am all over social media. I do a lot of posts on Instagram. My handle there is Spellman, S-P-E-L-M-A-N, Gemini, G-E-M-I-N-I. And I tweet a bunch, and that is Jaron Turner, my first and last name. So definitely, I love connecting, and a lot of those morning reflections that we spoke about are communicated on Instagram, are communicated on Twitter. And those are the two areas that I find that I interact and gain um, influences with people who say, oh my God, I didn't even think about that in that way. And I'm glad that you put that out there because it resonates with the way I think. Um, definitely, definitely follow me, reach out. Uh, my website is going through a little bit of a facelift, but it will be launched in January of 2024. But there are some nuggets there that are still applicable. Jaron Turner, author, writer, teacher, Yoga instructor, corporate leader, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. You are more than welcome. I'm honored to have shared space and time with you. Love where you took the conversation. Hope I uh, exceeded your expectations. And Absolutely. This was a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thank you. 
The hardest working producer and engineer in show business, the czar of our Tallahassee office, as well as the captain of the GHS two-handed tennis team, is our very own Brendan Cannonball Crellin. Our director of communications and the GHS ambassador from Long Island One Man Damn Yankees fan club is Keith Pinstripe Stragero. The GHS empress of the historical marker Don't Call Them Monuments division is Elise 135 Words Butler. The captain of the GHS Italian wine tasting team is Rebecca Beerstein Bertina. Our GHS director of bean counting is Greg Decimal Point Durkin, assisted by our accounts payable administrator, Amelda Checks. The director of the GHS Civil War Beard Division is Nate Brickwall Jackson Peterson. Our off the beaten path fact checker is Ella Fino. The GHS Holiday Wardrobe Consultant, always important this time of year, is Don Weenow. Our Director of Employee Loyalty is Upton Leftus. The Off the Deaton Path Moving Van Driver is Carrie DeSofa. Our Staff Layoff Specialist is Harry Verderci, assisted by Layoff Counselor Oscar LaVista. Our Off the Deaton Path HR Director is Stella Payne-Diaz, assisted by our Staff Benefits Specialist Sasha Payne-Diaz. The GHS Russian Intern this year is Igor Beaver. The Off the Deaton Path Elvis Impersonator is Amal Shookup. Our staff director of Three Stooges Studies is Lee Iapoka. Dr. Todd Gross's personal eBay specialist is Selma Junkoff. And our Off the Deaton Path martini mixer is Olive Twist. You can find our podcast anywhere you can find podcasts. You can find out everything about the Georgia Historical Society at georgiahistory.com. It's a brand new website, folks. Check it out. And the Georgia History Festival at georgiahistoryfestival.org. Be sure and like Off the Deaton Path on Facebook as well. Please also visit DeatonPath.GeorgiaHistory.com, that's Off the Deaton Path, and check out Dispatches from Off the Deaton Path, my blog, and similar page-turning podcasts like this one. Stay safe, stay strong. I'm Stan Deaton with the Georgia Historical Society. As always, thank you for listening. <laughs>